Let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Okay, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I build what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we acknowledge before you right now our great need. We are helpless before you, Lord, as we've been saying. And Lord, you are the one who is the source of all the things that we need. Lord, we acknowledge you that you are the God of truth and you speak truth. We are lies. Every man is a liar, but God is true. And Lord, we want to hear from you, not from man. We want to hear, we want to turn our ears away from this world and away from the voices that men of this world and religions of this world speak and the things that they say. And we want to hear your truth, your word, your wisdom. That's the truth that we live, by which we live. Lord, I pray that this morning as we study this passage we just read and over the next few weeks, I do pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, help us to understand, help us to see clearly, help us to see through all the muck, all the fog that the world puts before us and the religions of the world put before us. Help us to see Christ, your Son, that he is all we need. Help us to see the cross of Christ and what that means Help us to understand it and not nullify it. Help us not to err, Lord, as we are so prone to do. Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified through the preaching of your word. 
that you'd speak through me, Lord, and give us all ears to hear what you have to say here. Glorify your name and your Son and your wisdom and your righteousness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we looked at the passage right before this. We looked at the momentous meeting that took place in Jerusalem between Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem. If you remember, we talked about how that was one of those momentous meetings that changes the course of history. Those moments in the past that you wonder, man, if that didn't happen, or if that had turned out differently, how different things would really be now in this, in this world. That was a momentous meeting in Jerusalem that affects our lives today. And this week, in the passage that we read, which is really one unit, 11 to 21, we look at another momentous event, another momentous incident that changed the course of history, that if this had turned out any different then history as we know it would be different, the New Testament as we know it would be different, and none of us would probably be saved if there was a schism between Paul and Peter, and if they didn't reconcile, and if Paul wasn't there to correct Peter, and as we'll see, things would be totally changed. So we look at another significant event, profound profoundly affecting event. And there's three noticeable differences I'd like to point out between these two incidents, the one we looked at last week and the one we'll look at this morning. Three noticeable differences. First of all, the meeting in Jerusalem that we looked at last week was a meeting in which there was harmony between the Paul and the apostles, right? Paul goes to Jerusalem. He lays before them his gospel that he's been preaching uh, among the Gentiles, and the apostles... Uh, wholeheartedly give him the right hand of fellowship and say, God bless you, brother, go preach it, right? There was harmony. Noticeably in this meeting that we read about this morning, there's not harmony, but confrontation. Here's an incident where Paul and the apostles, namely Peter, are actually clashing. It's shocking, isn't it, to read that? But Paul opposes Peter to his face. So there's a noticeable difference. Not harmony, but confrontation. Another noticeable difference is that the meeting took place in Jerusalem, the first one, and this one takes place in Antioch. Jerusalem was the original center of Christianity, and it was uh, predominantly Jewish Christianity that was there in Jerusalem. Most Christians in Jerusalem, if not all the Christians in Jerusalem, were Jewish. There wasn't a lot of mixture between Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem. It wasn't until Christians left Jerusalem, the, the book of Acts tells us, that they actually began to preach the gospel to Gentiles. So in Jerusalem, in that central hub of Judaism, there was Christianity, but it was predominantly Jewish Christianity. Antioch, on the other hand, the book of Acts tells us, was the first city in which Jews and Gentiles really mixed together. The first city in which Christianity had a, not just a predominantly Jewish flavor, but a Gentile flavor. There was Jews and Gentiles mingling together. So it was really an interesting and unusual situation in the first century in Antioch. So that's another difference. This incident is in Antioch, not Jerusalem. And that's significant to the conflict, as we'll see. And the third and most important noticeable difference I'd like to point out between this incident and the one last week is that this incident in the letter of Galatians ends the autobiographical section of the letter, and it's, it begins the doctrinal section of the letter. Did you notice that? that in the course of the reading this morning, it starts with the autobiographical section, like I, I said to Peter, uh, or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, and it kind of just 
flows right into a doctrinal section. If you're familiar with Galatians, that doctrinal section continues on throughout until the rest of the letter, right? So it's from here, it's from this incident, this is the point I want to stress, that Paul launches out in the book of Galatians into the substance of his letter, into the doctrine of his letter. This is where he launches out. This is where he starts explaining the gospel. This is where, for Paul, he chooses to go and to launch into the rest of the letter. What this shows us is that all the doctrine of the book of Galatians is really contained in this incident in Antioch. And what we say about this incident in Antioch is going to be what we say about the rest of the book of Galatians. And what we say about the rest of the book of Galatians is going to be what we say about this incident in Antioch. You see how those two things go together, making this incident especially important. Paul, Paul saw that this incident and what happened there with Peter is what's happening with you guys in Galatia. And what I said to Peter at Antioch, you guys need to hear that. And jumping from this incident, I'm going to launch out into what I have to say to you. So it's very important that we understand this incident. And this also, this relationship between the event and the rest of the letter helps us explain why Paul brings the story up here at all and why he didn't bring the story up. Here's why he didn't bring the story up. He didn't bring up this incident in Antioch to make Peter look bad. You see? <laughs> he didn't say, I don't like Peter. We just Ever since I met him, we kind of had some tension. I'd love to sort of put him down a little bit and put myself up a little bit over him. So he didn't bring this up just to make Peter look bad and to make himself look good in the light of Peter. He brought it up because of its doctrinal relevance to the situation in Galatia. That's why he brought it up. It's doctrinal relevance. Now, two things are happening in Galatia, and they're connected. Paul's apostleship is being undermined by agitators who are coming to the churches in the province of Galatia, and they're saying, Paul's not, he's a second-hand apostle, he's not really uh, trustworthy, he's preaching a false gospel, he's telling you that all you need to do in order to be a child of Abraham, all you need to do in order to be a part of Israel, all you need to do in order to be righteous and right with God is believe in Jesus Christ. That's all you need to do. That's totally false. Mass faith in Christ is important, Faith in Christ is good. How many of you heard this before? Yes, you have to believe, but there's more. And if you don't have the more, you're not really a true Christian, and you're not right with God, and so you're not in the church. And so they were undermining Paul's apostleship and attacking his gospel. Paul has already defended his apostleship in the previous uh, section of the letter. He showed that his gospel was received independent of the apostles. He was not a second-hand apostle. He received it directly from Jesus Christ, a direct revelation from God. Then he showed that he was approved by the apostles, that he went to Jerusalem and they actually were approving his apostleship and his message. And here he may be adding that, look, I even defended my gospel against the apostles and won. So you need to take heed to my apostleship and my message. John Calvin points out, quote, it was no ordinary proof of the strength of his doctrine that he not only obtained their cordial appro approbation, but firmly maintained it in a debate with Peter and came off victorious. So perhaps the story does add some weight to his apostleship, but I think more importantly, this story is brought up because of its doctrinal relevance. He shares it to defend the gospel and to reiterate the teaching and the substance of what was said at Antioch to the Galatians. It's the same underlying issue. If you look at verse 14, Paul begins speaking to Peter, and there's some debate about 
where the quotation ends. Does, does Paul only say to Peter, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Some translations and some commentators say that's all he said to Peter. End quote. The rest of it, from verse 15 to 21, is just him teaching the Galatians, just him talking to them. But he didn't actually say that to Peter. I'm of the opinion that the quotation actually ends in verse 21, that Peter begin, that Paul begins speaking to Peter in verse 14, and everything that follows to verse 21, he actually said to Peter in Antioch before everybody. I, I think if you follow the, the we are Jews by nature, we seek to be justified in Christ, and he's talking to Peter there. So that's what I think. But it's really not uh, that significant where you end the quotation, because even if you were to end it in verse 14, verse 15 to 21 gives you the substance of what Paul was communicating to Peter in verse 14, right? So it really doesn't matter. Uh, 15 to 21 is what verse 14 means, what Paul is saying to Peter at that time. And so this doctrine is what Paul wants to get across to the Galatians and what God wants to get across to me and to you today. Do you believe that God wants you to understand this passage here? It's very important, isn't it? This is not one of those secondary things in the, in the Christian doctrine. This is central. This is crucial. And I dare say, if you don't understand this and don't believe what Paul's saying here, then you're not a Christian. And you don't know God. And you don't know Christ. If you don't understand this message. So this is why he brings this story up, and we're going to be looking at this whole section, 11 to 21, for a while, at least two Sundays, and probably more. So we'll be staying around this section for a few weeks. This morning, we're going to focus primarily on verse 11 through 14, and get the story down and the setting and the context of this doctrinal section. Next week, we'll start looking at the doctrine that Paul wants to get across here. We'll look at it more in detail, verse 15 to 21. So this morning I'd like to divide this section of verse 11 to 14 into three divisions. Verse 11, we're going to look at who's the culprit of the problem here? What's, who's responsible for this incident happening? That's what we're going to look at in verse 11. In verse uh, 12 and 13, we're going to look at what happened in Antioch and why. And in verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 14, thirdly, we're going to look at how Paul responded to the incident. So verse 11, look at there with me, please. The culprit. Who is the culprit? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You notice that Paul wastes no time in telling us the facts. Peter came. I opposed him because he was to blame. He calls him Cephas. He doesn't call him Simon. He calls him the name that Jesus gave to him Cephas, meaning the rock. And for a man who is called the rock, he was surprisingly unrock-like, wasn't he? The rock came to Antioch. <laughs> and I opposed him to his face, for he was to be blamed again. This man's often to be blamed. He almost would have been better to have been called rocky, right? In the sense of, like, rocking. Not stable. He's unsteady. But maybe that was too long of a Greek word. Cephas. I mean, think about Peter, how, how rocky Peter is in the Bible when we, when we learn about his story. The one moment he says, one moment we find Peter's walking on water. But he's unsteady, isn't he? Because in the next moment, 
he's sinking and he can't, he can't walk on water anymore. He loses his faith and, and sinks. Man, what a difference. How many of you have ever walked on water? I only sink whenever I go in the water, right? But he's walking on water and then he's sinking. What a contrast. Which is it, Peter? He tells Christ at one point, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. God has revealed the Son to you and no man. And then in the next moment, get behind me, Satan. Right? He calls Peter Satan right after saying, Blessed are you. He's like, Which is it, Peter? Are you blessed or are you Satan? I can't figure this out. Flip-flopper. Not rock-like. He says to Jesus, Don't wash me. And then the next minute, Wash all of me. Right? <laughs> Which is it? <laughs> I will die for you, even if everyone else denies you. And what does he do? Just a few hours later, he denies him. Or he shows his fierce boldness, surrounded by a crowd of soldiers, he pulls out a sword and attacks. Right? And then in the next minute, he runs. Peter, you're not really stable. You're not really rock-like. And then you'll remember in the book of Acts, God tells Peter, don't call that which is uh, I have cleansed common, right? He sends him to the Gentiles and he says, yeah, go talk to him, go eat with him, go share the gospel with him. I've cleansed. Don't call common. And then here in Antioch, Peter totally flip-flops again. What's up with this man? Cephas, the rock. Brothers and sisters, I believe that this name that Jesus named him was not meant to convey how firm Simon, son of Jonah, was. I don't think Jesus said, here's a rock-like man, I'm going to name him the rock. Because Jesus knew this man. He knew what, a, what, a, what an unsteady kind of guy he was. But I think that his name is meant not to convey how firm he is, but how firm Christ is, the one in whom he would trust. How firm the truth of Christ is that he would believe. And how amazing it is that a man like Peter could be saved and even be a leader of the church of Christ. And I think this is what his name is pointing to. Rock is pointing actually away from himself to God. Just like Joshua called the salvation of, of Jehovah is pointing away from himself to God. The rock is pointing away from himself to Peter later writes about the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling, that those who don't believe and are disobedient to the word stumble on, but to we who believe, this rock is precious. And so his name is meant to convey our God. In Psalm 18, verse 31, I think we would all agree, who is a rock except our God? Would anyone like to disagree with that? Who is a rock except our God? Have you ever found anyone trustworthy, steady, not rocky? totally consistent all the time, someone you can totally trust in. I've never known anyone like that but God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the rock that is sto living stones we are built upon. He is the one that we trust in as we were singing today. But, so here we see Peter, the leader in the church, flip-flopping again. If it can happen to Peter, it can happen to us. None of us are immune from error, right? None of us can say, I've crossed the line, now I've been... I've gone through my Pentecostal experience like Peter. I've uh, heard from the Lord Jesus teaching the Bible. I can't make any mistakes anymore. Peter was in error. And so we all are not immune from error in truth. But the truth always remains. Now consider how shocking this is that 
The Bible records this incident. In fact, this is so shocking that there's two extreme reactions to this incident at Antioch. Because it's so shocking that the Bible records two apostles of Jesus beating heads against one another. Two apostles of Jesus disagreeing. Or Peter, the one that God uh, chose to lead the church, actually being an error. I mean, if you wanted to write a book that made Christianity look good, you might not record an incident like this. So there's two extreme reactions to this. You know, the early Catholics commentators tried to save Peter here. And they tried to say, they, they tried two different things. They said, this is actually a different Capus. <laughs> so, you know, I know it's got the same name, but this is a different Capus. This is some cousin of some, somebody, you know. There's just no ground for that whatsoever. This is this is uh, undoubtedly so uh, the Peter that we know. The other thing they did they would say is that the way to save Peter is by saying that Paul and Peter actually planned the whole thing out as an object lesson. <laughs> so basically, Peter and Paul said, "Yeah, okay. What's going to happen is you're going to go to Antioch, then you're going to separate from the the disciples when they come, and then I'll rebuke you, and then everyone will get the message." And Peter's like, "All right." And so they actually thought, let's save Peter by, by just, this, this is all actually pretend to convey a lesson. This is a drama. <laughs> this is acting. But once again, there's absolutely no basis for this, and eventually that view was dropped. And actually it was Augustine, the great Catholic commentator, who actually slammed that and said, absolutely not. He was an error. The other extreme, however, which is ancient and modern, is to say that Paul and Peter were totally at odds that this actually reveals a serious difference between Pauline and Petrine Christianity. So what they say here is that Peter had a version of Christianity that was different than Paul's. Peter had a gospel that was different than Paul's, and they butt heads and clashed. And you know, Paul eventually won out. Paul hijacked original Christianity. Paul hijacked Christianity. Christianity originally was not, as we all know it, the Pauline version. It was Paul who came in and interrupted things and interfered, and eventually he won. And so now what we know is Christianity wasn't the Christianity that Jesus established and that the original apostles preached. In the ancient world, that view was famously held by the Ebionites. And in the modern world, many commentators still hold to that kind of view. I don't know if you've heard that before, that Paul and Peter were at odds. And this is somehow evidence of that. Now, both of these extremes are wrong. There is no doubt that they conflicted, that it wasn't a pretend thing, and that this was really Peter. But also, their disagreement was not as far-reaching as many are prone to think. The 17th century Dutch theologian Herman Witsius nails it on the head when he says, From this portion of sacred history, we are not at liberty to conclude that either of these two apostles had fallen into error in faith or that they differed from each other about doctrine. He's actually saying they agree about doctrine. Unquestionably, so far as relates to doctrine, Peter was of the same opinion with Paul on this subject, that it was lawful for a Jew to live on terms of friendship with believing Gentiles. The whole of this controversy related not to doctrine of Christian liberty, but to the exercise of it at different times and places. And on this point, the rules of prudence were better understood by Paul than Peter. So what Witsius says is that Peter and Paul agree together what Christianity is. They agree in doctrine. They both believe righteousness is through faith in Christ and not by any works. This was a matter of 
the exercise of that in a certain time and place. This is, how do you apply that? How do we behave in the light of that? This was a matter of, as we're going to see, behavior and consistent behavior in the light of this truth. And Paul understood it better than Peter. Paul saw the issue more clearly than Peter. But even though they agreed in doctrine, nonetheless, Peter stood condemned, it says here. The word is not the usual word for condemned. It doesn't mean God condemned him. It doesn't mean he was going to hell. It doesn't mean that he was unrighteous. It, it's a word that simply means there was fault found with him. Peter was to be blamed. And Paul took what Peter did seriously. So that's the first point in verse, verse 11. Is The culprit is Peter. Look at verse 12 and 13. What happened in Antioch and why? Verse 12 and verse 13. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they from James, men from James came, he withdrew himself, fearing the party of the circumcision. Now the situation here is very hard for us to understand. How many of you find it hard to understand? Like, what's the big deal here? He's eating together with some guys. They're Christians. And even if they weren't Christians, what's the big deal? Right? Why can't you eat with them? It's hard for us 21st century believers or people to understand what was going on in the first century there. The situation is complex, and the text doesn't take us by the hand and explain it all to us and say, let me help you 21st century people understand. But to Paul, even though we think, what's the big deal? This was a big deal. It was of utmost importance. The truth of the gospel was at stake. The death of Christ and the meaning of it was at stake, as we read on. This was a nullification of his death. We think, whoa. It's important for us to see and understand. Let's step back into history here into the first century world, that associating with Gentiles in the first century world was an extremely taboo thing to do. Turn with me to Acts 10. And this is when Peter is actually told by God to go and visit Cornelius. Consider that Peter is a believer, Peter's got the gospel, and he needs a revelation from God to go to Cornelius' house. That's how intense this taboo was in the first century. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. So Peter is in uh, Joppa, and there he has a vision, and, and, some, and God tells him not to call unclean what God has cleansed. And some visitors, some visitors from Caesarea come to him at the house and say, hey, we need you to come to Cornelius' house. He's a Gentile. He's devout. And you have a message for him. And Peter ends up going. And here's what he says when he gets there. In verse 28, you yourselves know. So the Gentiles are aware of this. Everybody's aware of it. This is common knowledge in the first century. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. So this is common knowledge in the first century. Jews don't associate and visit with Gentiles or with non-Jews or foreigners. It's just not done. The word here, unlawful, is not the usual word for unlawful. It's a word that means it's generally abominable. It's against the established order. And that's an important thing because you'll notice that nowhere in the Law of Moses does it say that a Jew cannot have a meal with or visit a Gentile. 
will not find that in the law of Moses. So if it's not in the law of Moses that Jews and Gentiles can't eat and hang out together, then why is it an abominable thing and against the established order for them to do it? Why is it against... What, what is that established order? The answer here, brothers and sisters, is that in the first century, Israel's zeal for God and for the law and for getting away from the past and their failures in the past and their mingling with the pagans in the past. You remember ancient Israel history, right? They didn't have a care about not mingling with Gentiles, right? They thought, let's be like the Gentiles. Let's do everything that the Gentiles do. Let's just be Gentiles ourselves, basically, right? That after the Babylonian captivity, Israel reacted to their history, and they said, we're going to do it differently now, and the pendulum swung, not now from being like the Gentiles and mingling with the Gentiles completely, and not to where the law tells it needs to be, but all the way to the other side, where they didn't want anything to do with Gentiles at all. And by the first century, that had developed so much that Israel had completely turned in upon itself. They were interested in Jewish things only. They were interested in being Jews. They were interested in obeying the laws. They wanted no defilement from the Gentile world whatsoever, so much so that they couldn't even visit a devout Gentile's home, Cornelius. Cornelius was a devout worshiper of the God of Israel. He wasn't a Jew, but he wasn't a pagan either. And they couldn't even associate with him. So severe was this a polarization in the first century. It's true that the law tells them to drive out the Canaanites, but it was acknowledged everywhere in the law that you're to be kind to strangers and to be loving towards strangers in your midst. But Israel, didn't. they took that drive out the Canaanites to an extreme. We don't want anything to do with the Gentiles at all. This is their tradition. This is their halakha. This is not their law. This is what they think their law is saying. One of the, an early Jewish book from that time, before that time actually, about a hundred years before Jesus' time, says this, quote, Book of Jubilees, Separate from the nations and do not eat with them. Do not act as they do. Do not become their companion, for their actions are impure and all their ways are defiled, abominable, and detestable. That was the attitude of Jews in that time. Don't associate with them. They're all morally corrupt. They're all idolaters. They're all pagans. They're going to corrupt you. They're going to turn you away from the God of Israel. Then they quote the Bible. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of the scornful. Right? Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who has nothing to do with those unbelievers. Or Isaiah 52, come out from among her and be separate. And touch not the unclean thing. See, they're taking this seriously now. We don't want anything to do with those disgusting Gentiles who are without God. They saw the Gentiles as to be totally separated from in order to avoid idolatry and in order to avoid helping their idolatry. Here's some laws in the uh, Jewish tradition that they followed in those days. Three days before any heathen festivals, there could be no transactions among Jews and Gentiles. So before a, a, a heathen festival, you're not to do any business with a Gentile lest you help them in their festival. Lest you add joy to their experience in their festival. Even birthdays or homecomings, when people came home from a journey, three days before those birthdays, you cut off all 
transactions with Gentiles that you're not supporting and encouraging their heathen practices. So you can see they did deal with the Gentiles, but it was very uh, limited, and there were rules about it. They weren't to do any labor work to help the heathens at all, to help build heathenish buildings. They were not, they were destroy anything remotely connected with heathenism. I mean, if someone gave you a cup or a spoon, something that's not really intrinsically pagan, but if a Gentile gave it to you, you'd have to destroy it. And you could never buy it because it might have been used in pagan rituals and celebrations. So there's, you can't do anything with those, with Gentile things because it might have been used in paganism. Gentiles could not be trusted. You couldn't be alone with a Gentile because they actually taught the Jews that they're, they're so corrupt morally that if you're alone with them, they'll attack you and steal you, your stuff and mug, mug you. So you, these guys are just wicked, and you need to stay away from them unless you're in a group. If you, you couldn't drink any of their milk or have any of their oil or food or bread unless you saw them make it. If you saw them make it, then as a Jew, you knew that they didn't do anything with it that was pagan. And they didn't put some pig meat in it or something like that. But if they offer it to you and you didn't see them prepare it, then you're not to eat it, it's prohibited. Because maybe they corrupted it just to get you, you see? Even if you were at a shop or something, and and uh, even your own shop, if you had your own shop and a Gentile came in, if you went out of there leaving the Gentile alone in there, all your goods would then be corrupt because the Gentile might have put something into the milk or the jars and that would have spoiled everything. So you could never leave a Gentile alone in your house. Otherwise, all the stuff becomes condemned. You see, this is the attitude of the first century. that You don't mingle with these morally corrupt people. It was extreme separation, extreme animosity. The Bible says that there was a wall between them. A wall. You couldn't couldn't get over that wall. All the Gentiles were lumped together. They were called sinners. You can see that in Galatians chapter 2. He says, we Jews are Jews by nature and not sinners like the Gentiles. The Gentiles are by nature sinners. The Gentiles are by nature unholy. They're by nature outside of God and outside of the things of God, unlike us. It's comparable to when the, the Pharisees were complaining about Jesus eating with sinners, the sinners in Israel. So when a Jew became a harlot or a tax collector or a sinner, they treated those, those Jews like they were Gentiles too. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't eat with you. We don't mingle with you. You're outside of Israel. You're outside of fellowship. You're, you're not a Jew anymore. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul tells the Gentiles to remember that one time they were outside. He says, you were alienated from God. You were without any hope. You were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. He lists off a few things. That was the attitude of the Jews toward the Gentiles. You're alienated without any hope and without God. There were many Jews that thought conversion was actually impossible. That Gentiles could never convert and become Jews. You see, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? But through the blood of Christ, you have been brought near. It's in, in Paul's mind, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that brings a Gentile into Israel, just as it is the blood of Christ that brings a Jew into Israel as well. It's the blood of Christ that reconciles both unto God. Nothing less than the death of Christ, nothing less than his shed blood, could remove that attitude that 
Gentiles are unclean and, and they're sinners and removed from God and hopeless and morally corrupt and don't associate with them. It wasn't that Paul said, hey, they're really not so bad, they can come in. Paul didn't say, hey, we can have table fellowship, they're not as bad as we thought. It's the blood of Christ that cleansed both Paul, both the Jews and the Gentiles, that enabled them in Paul's mind to come together as one. See, Christianity isn't just saying, hey, don't worry about the Gentiles, they're not so bad. It's the introduction of the truth of the blood of Christ that cleanses sinners, and we're all sinners. You see the difference? It's not, hey, Jews, you're too hard on the Gentiles. It's, you're not hard on yourself. We're all sinners, and we need the blood of Christ. Amen? This was so ingrained in the thinking of the Jews that even the early Christians struggled with this, as we see in the Bible. They were not used to the radical freedom of Christianity. They weren't used to this. It was so ingrained that Jews and Gentiles were to be separated, and the Gentiles were almost irredeemable, if not irredeemable. They were like a child with a life jacket on. He was afraid to jump in the water. You ever seen that? Well, you're safe. You can jump in. There's real freedom here. The blood of Christ really has cleansed us all. And, you know, a child is totally safe with the life jacket, but they don't want to go in or they jump in there, ah, I'm scared. It's like they, they, they were in a new paradigm, but they were still un, un, not accustomed to it, not used to it. And as I mentioned, in Jerusalem, there was little to no mixture between Jews and Gentiles. The issue didn't really arise in Jerusalem. The issue arose in Antioch, where there was a, the first real mixture between Jews and Gentiles in this Christian thing that was going on. Jews and Gentiles now eating together openly, relating to each other without limitation and walls and seeing each other as one through the blood of Christ only. Whoa, this is radical. It was in Antioch that the first real mix happened. We see in the text here that in verse 13 or 12, Galatians 2 verse 12, that Peter at first ate with the Gentiles as he had been instructed by God in the book of Acts. Peter was fine with eating with them, and he enjoyed what was happening in Antioch. He enjoyed the freedom that Christ had brought between the two groups and made them one. And the other Jews were doing it as well, because you'll notice Peter withdrew, but so did the other Jews. So the Jews and the Gentiles were all enjoying their freedom there. Until, verse 12 tells us, certain men came from James. That is, some Jews came up from Jerusalem who didn't get this freedom. Jews came up from Jerusalem who didn't who still were thinking the old ways, couldn't grasp that the blood of Christ is what makes us clean before God. These were probably the same guys in the group of the agitators who thought, no, 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 it's not just through faith alone. You have to keep the commandments. You have to be circumcised. You've got to become a Jew if you're a Gentile. And if you're a Jew, you need to be obedient to the law. We need to be righteous if we're going to be in fellowship with the righteous. Be righteous through our works. And lo and behold, when these men come up to Antioch, we see that Peter withdraws. The word is separates himself. He separates. He does what all the Jews were doing before. Come out from among them and be separate. When they, when they come up, Peter leaves what he was doing. Why did he do that? Was it because Peter didn't believe in righteousness through faith? Was it because Peter believed that righteousness came other than faith? And he thought, oh my goodness, what have I been doing? I forgot. Uh, I was confused. These guys reminded me that we can't just believe in Jesus and, and be the children of Abraham and righteous. They're reminding me that, no, there's more to it than that. We need to keep the law. Was that what was going on in Peter's mind? The answer is absolutely no. 
Peter withdrew, it tells us in verse 12, not because he believed something other than the gospel, but it says because of fear for what these men thought. It was fear for what these men thought. It was not because he believed differently than Paul. And in verse 13, all the Jews followed Peter. That shows you his influence. Even Barnabas, Paul says. There's a sense there, it's like Julius Caesar when he's being stabbed by everybody. Uh, he says, you too, Brutus? Right? Even you? I think Paul's thinking, even Barnabas went along with what Peter was doing? He calls them hypocrites in verse 13. Why does he call them hypocrites? Because they believed differently. They knew better. And they were behaving differently earlier. They were then consistent. But now they're acting like hypocrites because they're withdrawing even though they don't even believe they need to withdraw. You see, this is what's going on. They're hypocrites because they believe the same as Paul does. As Paul goes on in the doctrinal section, he appeals to what Peter knows. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So Peter and Jews and Barnabas, you're all playing the hypocrites by separating. So the question is, if they believed the gospel, and if, it, if they didn't withdraw because they didn't believe the gospel, then why would they fear these guys? The question is, why would Peter and the Jews and Barnabas fear these men if they knew what the gospel, if they knew the gospel? Now, probably the best explanation for their withdrawal is that Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews, when they withdrew, not because they didn't believe the truth, but because they were seeking to accommodate the Jews who came from Jerusalem under the paradigm or under the, uh, the, the basis that you're to be all men to all people. They, they, they thought to themselves, we're going to give offense to these Jews who are coming from Jerusalem. They're, they're going to be upset. They're going to cast us out. They're going to think we're crazy. We want to have a hearing with them. And so we're going to separate from the Gentiles to make them happy, to, to not offend them, to be all things to all people. And Paul, that's what you did, right? When, to the Jews, you became a Jew. To the Gentiles, you became a Gentile. We're just simply doing that too. And I believe this was their motivation for withdrawing. Not because they didn't believe, but because they wanted to not offend the others. You'll remember Witsia said in that quote that it wasn't over doctrine but about the time and the place. The exercise, the application of that doctrine our behavior in time and place. There's a limit to accommodation. Amen? There's a limit to seeking not to offend people. Amen? So Paul when he said, I become all things to all people so that I can win them uh, not to cause needless offense. There's a limit to that. Right? As D.A. Carson says, as flexible as Paul may have been, he was not infinitely elastic. Right? He wasn't just trying to not offend anybody, and sometimes Christians get like that, where they don't want to offend anyone, so they even stop speaking the gospel. The gospel is the most number one offensive thing of all, right? I don't want to tell that guy he's a sinner. I don't want to tell that guy he's unrighteous and he's lost, and he doesn't know God, and that he needs to put his faith in the death of Christ alone to be saved. I don't want to tell him all of his good works are done. That's offensive. But Paul would say you're compromising if you if you are accommodating at that level, at the level 
of the truth. Paul saw more clearly than Peter did. He says, no, no, I believe in accommodation. I believe in not offending people needlessly. But this is crossing the line. This is actually compromising the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel will not remain if you compromise like this. If you accommodate these guys. Because the message you're sending is actually a false message. By doing that, you're compelling, verse 14, the, Jew, the Gentiles that they have to become Jews. You're compelling them. You're, you're communicating that they are not right with God. And that's crossing the line. It's the difference between, say, I was going somewhere with someone. Let's say I went to a restaurant. Um, or let's say someone came over to my house who was totally anti-alcohol. Okay, Totally against drinking. They're total teetotalers. And they're totally supportive of the prohibition. They want to have a prohibition too. Okay? And they'd be so offended otherwise. I probably might not drink a beer that night. Right? Even though I think that's fine. See, I'm not against drinking alcohol in moderation. And so I would accommodate and try not to offend that person by not needlessly offending them by drinking in front of someone who's totally against that. Right? But what if someone came to church... And I'll just use this as an example. Let's say they believe in closed communion. Closed communion is that the communion, the Lord's Supper is not open to everybody who believes. The Lord's Supper is closed off to only those who are living righteously, only those who are living a good life. That's a common thing in many churches. They think you can't just come and take the bread and the wine unless you're living the right standards and things like that. And so let's say they came to church and I knew they were coming and they, they were coming on the on like a day like this when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And they're thinking, okay, I'm thinking, okay, they're coming and they're, they're not going to like the fact that we don't have closed communion. We have open communion. We, we say anyone who believes can take this. I mean, we don't encourage people who don't believe to take it. That would be wrong. But anyone who believes in Christ, you are righteous. You are a child of God. You are in, right? Come and remember what Christ has done for you, come and rejoice that this is all your hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Not because you're good, that you, not because you're good do you have access to Christ, but because you're a sinner, you need Christ, right? And so it would be wrong for me if this man came along, he's like, this is not a close communion, I'm not taking communion here, for me to accommodate him and to not offend him and say, I won't take communion either, you know? Oh yeah, this is this is kind of wrong, isn't it? I'm not going to take it either. See, by doing that, I would be compromising the gospel. Because I would be communicating, it's not right for me to eat together with you all. It's not right for us just simply as sinners to put our faith in Christ and be right with God through faith alone. We have to somehow perform and be right through our works before we're worthy to take communion. I would be communicating that, and that would be a compromise, compromisation of the gospel. Amen? You see? So there's a limit to our accommodation. And what happened here in Antioch is in the line of that closed communion kind of thing, that Peter was actually compromising the gospel in his desire to not offend the Jews. It was a... They were making that un, unwitting, unwittingly statement. They were saying, Gentiles need the law. They are not in because they're sinners. We cannot eat with them because they are not clean through faith alone. That's the message that was being communicated, even though they were hypocrites for doing it 
because they didn't believe that at all. So you'll see that there was a real serious disagreement between Paul and Peter here, but it wasn't as far-reaching as some think. There wasn't a Pauline and a Petrine Christianity. There was one Christianity, and it, this was simply a matter of applying the accommodation principle, and Paul saw more clearly than Peter. This would be destructive to the church and affect history as we know it, if Paul didn't respond. So lastly, verse 14, how did Paul respond? In verse 14 says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, the word is literally straight-footed, they were not walking straightly, they were veering off to the left or to the right from the gospel. Paul is concerned here with the truth of the gospel, and he defies even the most the chiefest of the apostles for the sake of the truth of the gospel. He defies in front of everybody to his face, Peter, the rock, the chief apostle, for the sake of the truth of the gospel. That's what Martin Luther loved this incident because of that. He loved this incident because here you see that the truth is more important than offices, right? He loved it. This really resonated with him because that's what he was all about too. They all tried to slam Luther down and say, Luther, you're going against the Pope. Luther, you're going against the bishops. Luther, you're going against tradition. Then he's saying, yeah, but the word of God says, right? You guys are in error. And if Paul can confront Peter, then I can confront you because the truth is more important than offices. As Luther pointed out in this part in the commentary on Galatians, in his commentary, he said, let the drop give place to the sea and let Peter give place to God. For the word of God can never be magnified enough. If we lose the word of God, and if we lose the gospel, but we keep all the offices, how are we? How are we doing? Let's say we lose the gospel, and we no longer know the truth, but yet we still got the buildings, and we still got Peter, and we still got the bishops, and we still got all... Do we have God? No. The truth. Do we have the truth? That is the question. And so he confronts Peter before them all, publicly, for the sake of all, because this was a public matter, and he didn't just take Peter aside privately and say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? This was a public matter that needed immediate and public rebuke. Now look at verse 14 as we close here. What Paul says to him. I'd like to share a more literal translation of this of this phrase here. Most of our Bibles will say, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? That translation is not bad, but it kind of gives, it kind of communicates, it's like if you're living your life, if you're living your life and your behavior like the Gentiles, why are you telling the Jews, why are you telling the Gentiles to live their lives and their behavior and to walk their walk like the Jews? But a more literal translation would be like this. If you, being a Jew, Gentilishly and not Jewishly live, why do you compel the Gentiles to Judaize? You, you are Gentilishly living. You are not Jewishly living. So why are you compelling the Gentiles to Judaize? The word live here, you are, gen, you are Gentilishly, you Gentilishly live. If you look at the context of the word live here, uh, you're going to find that the word live is a lot more significant than just how you live your life, how you behave day in and day out, 
how you walk your walk. But this is actually how you are alive unto God. How you are saved. How you are delivered from death and have eternal life. If you look at the context in verse 19, I through the law died to the law so that I might live unto God. Okay? The word live here is not just how you living, you know? How's life going for you? Oh, it's Gentilish. It's Jewish. No, it's how are you delivered from death? How do you live unto God? How are you saved? Gentilishly or Jewishly? That's the question. There's another verse in chapter 3, verse 11. The righteous by faith shall live. That is not the righteous by faith will walk the walk. That is the righteous by faith will not die. Because we're all into the sentence of death as sinners. And we need to be saved from that sentence. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will live and not die. Amen? So this is the sense of verse 14. You're a Jew... You Gentilishly and not Jewishly live, so why do you force the Gentiles to Judaize? What does it mean to Jewishly live? What does it mean to be delivered from death in a Jewish kind of way? The one that does it will live. The one that does the law will live. Moses describes the righteousness that's of the law. The one that does it will live, right? See, you've got to be righteous. Everybody understand that? You've got to be righteous because God is a righteous God and God is our judge. Every one of us will be standing before God one day in the great judgment seat. And you've got to be righteous in order to not die on that day, in order to not receive the wages of sin. You've got to be righteous. You've got to be what you're supposed to be. You've got to be perfect. You have to be, according to God and his standards, one who loves God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves your neighbor as yourself. This is what righteousness means. And the Jewish way to live is, as Moses says, the one who does it will live. If you keep the law, you'll be righteous, and you'll not die. You keep the law. You do what it says. You love God with all your heart. You love your neighbor as yourself. You have perfect love. Then you'll be accepted by God and not die. Why will you die, Ezekiel said? Turn from your wickedness and live. That's the Jewish way. You're all sinners. Stop being sinners and live. That's the Jewish way. That's the Jewish way. And by the way, the Jewish way is the way of all the religions of this world except for Christianity. Right? That's the Jewishly way to live. Is Here's what God's standards are. I need to change and meet those standards and I will be saved. And what does the Bible say about the Jewish way? That no one, not yesterday, not today or tomorrow, will ever be righteous by doing the law. No one will ever be righteous by doing the law. Those Jews who look out at those Gentiles and say, those disgusting sinners who don't keep the law, they're not righteous like us. Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles all rebuke them and says, you're just as sinful as everybody else because no one is righteous by doing the law. You fall short of the glory of God. You too are under the sentence of death. You too cannot find salvation in the law, but only condemnation. How many of you have ever been in another religion and you've tried the Jewish way? You've tried keeping the commandments. You've tried, okay, there's the standards. I'm going to make my grandest effort to do it. I'm going to find peace with God through my obedience. 
I'm going to find peace with God by doing all the right things. I'm going to do it and have joy and peace. And what do you find at the end of that process? Oh, I failed, right? And when I tried again even harder, I failed again. And you actually lost hope in yourself. Accomplishing that. No one will live by the Jewish way, the Bible tells us. So what is the Gentilish way to live? It's kind of an odd way of putting it. But the Gentilish way of living is when you realize that you are a sinner and no lawkeeper. When you realize that you are without God and without hope in this world, that when you realize that you don't have anything to offer, when you realize, as Jesus said, you're poor in spirit, when you're the kind of guy that Jesus described, he goes to the temple and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? This is the Gentiles where you acknowledge, I am not righteous. I am not good. I don't meet the standards. I fall short. God requires perfect love. I don't love even a lot. I love a little. And God requires perfect love. I'm out. I'm outside. I need salvation. I need deliverance. I need rescue from someone other than myself. This is the Gentilish way to live. It's when you realize you are not righteous in and of yourself. And you look away from yourself, as the Bible teaches us and as Paul is going to explain, to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of the world. And through his sacrificial death for our sin, for him paying the penalty, for him dealing with our sin problem and not ourselves, he is the one who through his sacrifice, now as the risen Lord, offers salvation and righteousness freely to all those who accept his gift by faith. Righteousness by faith is the Gentilish way to live because your righteousness isn't from yourself but from God. The righteous by faith will live. And brothers and sisters, that is the only way to live. There is no other way to be alive unto God and to be saved. So it's from this incident that Paul launches out and begins to explain below and throughout the letter righteousness through faith. Because righteousness through faith is what was being compromised here in Galatia. When Paul was saying, or when Peter was withdrawing and intimating that the Gentiles needed something more than faith in order to be right with God and in the church. It's manifest that Peter accepted Paul's rebuke. And this shows Paul's, uh, Peter's, Peter accepted Paul's rebuke, yes. A lot of peace. And Peter, it shows his humility. It shows that there wasn't a schism between them at all. It was one man just correcting another brother. He believed the same things. I need to point this out publicly, yes, for the sake of the truth, but you're in error. And Peter took that. The incident is not at all mentioned in the book of Acts. And as Frederick Rendell says, the omission in the book of Acts is instructive, for it bears out the impression which the epistle itself conveys, that the collision was transitory and had no lasting effect on the church history. Now what he means by no lasting effect, meaning this problem didn't spread throughout church history, but it certainly did have an effect on church history. The fact that Paul stopped that compromisation and Peter took that rebuke had a profound effect upon history. If this didn't happen, then probably none of us would be Christians today. The church would have just split. The truth prevailed. 
And that's why we're here today. And I'd like to just close this morning by saying that as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, it's time for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins, the blood that was shed to bring us near and to make us one. All those sinners in the world, whether Jews or Gentiles, to bring us together in one, to make us righteous together in one family through faith. It's for us to remember his sacrifice for us as all that we need because we are helpless sinners. And the Bible tells us enemies to God without any hope until the love of God, which sent Christ, uh, the, the, except because of the love of God, his rich love for us sinners and us enemies, if it were not for his love, we would have no hope. He sent Christ to die for us. He provided what we needed. He provided righteousness for us. This is what we are remembering this morning. Amen? We are nothing apart from him. So let's remember what this means and be amazed at his grace. And look around at one another when we take it. And realize all the believers here who are truly Christians, who put their faith in Christ, we're all one in this together. It's not because of our works. It's simply because of Christ that we are eating together and acknowledging our oneness in him. So let's eat together this morning in the united hope and faith of eternal life in Christ through righteousness by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth that lasts and prevails. Thank you for this instructive incident at Galatia. Please cause us to think about what we've heard. Cause us to think about your word, Lord. Let it sink down deep. Help us to be amazed and wonder at the cross and not forget and compromise it. Help us to always have open arms towards other believers realizing that they are in through faith and that we all stand saved who have believed because of the grace that you've given, Lord. Thank you for the great hope that we have. We encourage our hearts this morning and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.